You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsmen of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsmen. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in there. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week can you spend out As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> got dogs running around me right now i'm (laughs) i want to welcome everybody to the houndsman xp podcast and uh hey we've got we got a i'm real i usually don't start podcasts i'm gonna edit all this crap out 
I don't like starting them like that. I just like rolling into a good conversation yep. and, and stuff you. like that. So, um, so we're going to Greenwood, Indiana. Is that safe to say? Are you guys in Greenwood or, or do you guys claim yeah. to be in Franklin? No, we're, we're green. We're, we're east of Greenwood. So yeah. Yeah. We it's a, Greenwood address. that's, that's what I say. It's like people ask me where I live and it's like, well, um, I kind of live close to Cincinnati, but not too close. <laughs> not too close. I'm not from yeah. Cincinnati, you know? Yeah. yeah uh, well, we, I guess we could say we're close to Indianapolis, but we're not. We're yeah. Not, so. Yeah, that's, it's, as I travel around, it's really, uh, it's really entertaining because I bear around a lot in West Virginia and Virginia and different stuff like that. And, and where I live down here in southeastern Indiana, I remember it's, it's very hilly. It's very rugged. Um, and and we were had my daughter with me. We were bear hunting in West Virginia, and one of the other girls that was in the the hunting group with us asked my daughter. and says, "You're probably not used to hunting in all these hills, are you?" And my daughter just as deadpan. She looked around and she goes, "This looks like exactly where looks exactly like where we hunt at home." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hey, I'm happy to have Jet and Charlie on from. Uh, who's your trapper supply? We're going to talk about trapping today. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about, you know, how, how so many of us are houndsmen and trappers and the relationship between trappers and houndsmen and the future of trapping. Cause I think, uh, trapping is something that's going to be needed well into the future. So let's just, uh, kick it off with some, some formal, some formal introductions here. We've got Charlie Mashek and Justin Jett. Uh, from Hoosier Trapper Supply. You guys have been in business up there a long time. We were talking before the show, Charlie, and we've got a lot of a lot of uh, common friends there. And I'll have a story here for you in a minute. But but go ahead and Charlie, if you don't mind, you're the you're the godfather of Hoosier Trapper Supply, <laughs> the founder. And uh, just give us some background on Hoosier Trapper Supply. How you ended up opening that business. I think it's an amazing story when we hear when you started the business. So started in 76, uh, the same year I graduated from, um, uh, high school. And I was, I was a trapper prior to that. Um, and, uh, I guess it was just the entrepreneurial side of me thought it would be a good idea to sell trapping supplies. Of course, you know, when you're 18, you don't realize the risks and, you know, everything that goes along with having a business. And of course, over the years, I've seen about everything. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, sold trapping supplies and I was contacted by a guy out West um, about buying fur. So I actually got into the fur business about the same time or at the same time and um, bought through fur through uh, 1991, continued to sell trapping supplies. And then um, fur market pretty much crashed in the, in the late 80s. Kind of scrambled around trying to figure out how to stay in business. We still we still sold trapping supplies, but when that market crashed initially, it was kind of like somebody just shut the faucet off, because people were, went from receiving really good money for their fur yeah. to not, you know, having to struggle finding a buyer. So um, obviously those sales dropped off quite a bit too. So anyway, we started doing taxidermy in the mid '90s, and that kind of bailed us out, and uh, we still continue to do that to this day. Uh, I was a receiving agent for North American Fur Auctions. It, for years and years, it was Hudson Bay Fur Company. Yeah. And I dealt with them for a number of years, um, both uh, 
as, as a buyer and then, well, as a buyer. And then in, in the late 80s, they changed the name to North American Fur Auctions. So yeah. uh, it was a company NFA. that had been in business for, yeah, for business for a long, long time. And Talking century, a, centuries. Hudson yeah, Bay six, goes... Uh, 1640, I think, actually. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, and um, so I started, I, I started as a receiving agent for them. So in other words, uh, trappers and hunters could bring their fur to us. And then we would just take care of the transfer, um, you know, get them an account set up and, and um, take care of the transfer and getting their fur to Canada uh, yeah. so that they could put their fur in the auction and basically essentially sell as direct as they possibly could. So mm -hmm. instead of going through a country buyer, which are country buyers are great. They, they definitely, uh, we need them. We, we could use more right now, but, um, and then circumstances with um, probably some poor decisions, some, ranch main issues and whatever and it all kind of came uh collapsing down on them and they they actually quit i think it was in 2018 or 2019 uh was when that all fell apart so yeah um what do you think that kind of ended yeah, an era you know that i mean competition coon hunting has taken over uh the hound scene by the by and large but back when i first started hunting you know hides and hide hunters there were plenty of them a right. lot of guys that skinned everything, put up their own fur, you know, just a whole shooting match. And I think guys like me, that was part of the romance of trapping and running hounds and everything that got me into the, you know, into to hound hunting. Mm -hmm. And um, so part of me, I wish it would all come back. And I, I, I think it would be interesting to kind of talk about maybe why that thing fell apart because we all sit around and we talk about it but it's not very often that we get to talk to uh an industry insider like you that, that's got that information you mean the fur market in general why yeah, yeah okay. just so basically i mean there, there's a lot of things that occurred but basically in the late 80s when um the fur market had kind of got went through the significant change. And a lot of that was due to, um, we had a couple really warm winters. Um, the animal rights movement was starting to really kick in in the European countries. So there was this big transition in fashion. And so a lot of that just was never able to bring it back. So, mm -hmm. so things have shifted over the years and a lot of the fur goes to um, China, which is one of the biggest um, users of fur. So, the ranch mink, um, there's, there was, a, I think at one time, uh, in not too, you know, not that long ago, about 80 million ranch mink produced in the world. So the fur market and people, consumers using fur is probably alive and well, just not so much in North America. It's mostly mm -hmm. shifted. So, um, the, uh, Animal rights movement was pretty successful in the idea of making people feel bad about wearing a fur coat or being associated with that in this mm -hmm. country. And that has never been a hurdle that we've never been able to get over. Um, there has been some ideas with uh, some of the people within the fur industry to sell it as more of a green product, um, which, is, which is probably not a bad idea. Um, you know, something that's sustainable and, and that kind of thing. Right. But, uh, so far that, that hasn't taken hold. Uh, and I, that, I have a feeling that's going to be a major uphill battle. That's but, an interesting point. Cause I have read some articles on that about, 
and some promotions for that. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, all these people sitting out there talking about green and, and green energy and being more environmental, uh, environmentally conscious. And, and then they start pointing out what it takes to make nylon, you know, right. and, and how environmentally unfriendly that is. Right. And yet we've got this fur, this sustainable, renewable resource out there in fur that is just getting pushed to the back burner. You know, it's just right. getting dismissed. Right. And we've, you know, at this point, we've already gone a generation <laughs> and a half, two generations, essentially, since there was, you know, um, women wearing fur coats in public, you know, we just don't see that much anymore. So it's kind of just now to bring that completely back around is, is that's another you know, that's another uphill battle. But don't so. you think it will? I mean, look what look what the beaver hat did to the Rocky Mountain beaver trade, mm -hmm. you know? And we never saw really beaver hats come back, although a lot of the high-grade Western hats are still made out of beaver. So the, the present-day story on, on beavers, and right now beavers, in the scheme of things, are higher than they've been in years. And the whole driving force behind the beaver market, and that is one very big bright spot uh, in the fur industry and all and that is because of uh, resist all and Stetson and those hat companies mm -hmm. are selling more hats uh, now uh, than they have in, in several years and it's because of Yellowstone I was gonna say thanks Yellowstone yeah exactly so I mean like that like that show or not we'll 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 take the, we'll take the beaver the beaver sales so I'll tell you something else they've done is they've made they've made Coors beer there you go <laughs> They've made Fine. Coors beer more popular and more accessible for all us old timers that grew up drinking it before anybody ever heard a rip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that, like I said, that's one of the bright spots presently in the, in the fur industry. Um, so. That's interesting. I did yeah. not know that, but, but see fashion comes back around. Do you think fashion is going to come back around for women? I see more fur in social media posts and things than, I probably did seven years ago. I think so. I think that, that's that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's like if you take it away, if you take it away and tell people they can't have it, then you've always got these people that are going to say, "Well, yes, I can," and they're going to, you know, they're going to try to bring it back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. So. Yeah, Justin, how do you fit into this whole picture? Well. I, uh, I'm married into the family business, put it that way. Oh yeah. So here's the short, here's the short, long story. Um, back in high school, met Charlie's daughter and, uh, started dating and I knew what he did for a living taxidermy and trapping. I didn't know too much about trapping at all. And oh yeah. So where I was working at the time, they had a beaver issue flooding the parking lot. <laughs> truck drivers couldn't get in and out of the lot and the owner was fed up and said hey i'll anyone that can get rid of these things i'll pay them i was like oh, okay i got an idea who i should ask <laughs> charlie gave me a little quick intro to trapping 101 basically and i caught a couple there and then once i did that it was like i was hooked on it and went down the rabbit hole you know now we're catching coyotes and whatever you know um traveling to different states and everything we we film a lot of our adventures, put them on YouTube for Hoosier Trapper Outdoors, um, you know, showing the products that we sell and have and use. 
you know, it's, it's been, it's been good. I've been what, 15 years, no. probably a little over 15 years now. Yeah. It was so good that probably you quit 20 years. pushing 20 years now, 20 years. So. Yeah. It was so good. You quit your job. <laughs> well, it was a high school gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what, what other, I mean, that's like a dream job, Justin, you know, <laughs> Who didn't I don't grow know up work with me for a day? <laughs> who didn't grow up wanting to trap and hunt for a living? You know, we all I dream about it. it That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that would love, you know, kill to be in my position and do things like this. And Charlie, yeah. did you start him out in the skin and shed? Yeah, he's, he's, and he's still, he's still, he was, <laughs> He was, he was, yeah, he was scraping bears today. So, I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't have awesome. a title. So yeah. It's like a jump around, whatever he needs to have done. I, I always tell whoever working is like, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't already done myself. So, you know, it's just, if we're grinding up coyote glands, that's, I've done it. So, yeah. what, you know, whatever we're doing that, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Well, what do you guys see as far as, you know, the future for trappers? Because if you just look at social media, you look at, you know, the current trends, if you just a doomsday or, uh, you know, I know there's a, I saw a big shift in the trapping market from the recreational trapper to the nuisance wildlife control trapper that could, you know, you could still enjoy trapping and also make, you know, a pretty decent pretty good living I, guess. Yeah. I used to hold that permit in the state of indiana uh so i know there's money to be made there but how how big of an impact has that made on your business so i mean we sell a little bit to that market we are not um we are mostly um deal with recreational uh and guys that are still fur trapping uh we yeah. do sell some we do sell some to to the nuisance industry but um it's not as um, um, our our primary our primary business is based on the recreational and um, a lot of guys um, and this would kind of go to the nuisance end of it, but this it's a little different aspect is the management thing with um, uh, managing their hunting property, trying to just keep the you know nest predators under control and coyotes, you know um, that kind of thing. So we do do a lot of, we do do quite a bit of business with people like that, but we have found that generally those guys that get on that um, management plan, if, if they're not really enjoying the trapping end of it, it's really too much work if you don't <laughs> enjoy it. So they're, most of them just blame become trappers. So um, it's rare to, um, we might see a guy and he's all gung ho and then we'll never see him again. But for the, the guy that is, you know, starts out with that idea, then they, then they, like Justin said, you, you go down the rabbit hole and they've just become trappers. So, um, yeah, we, for, we have, we have seen quite a bit of that. We, I had a friend of mine down here who's, um, a, a very good coyote trapper and, um, we would get calls and I'd run his line with him and I'd even get him permission to, to trap different places, you know, and, and, um, it was always funny because you'd hear these people that, that I, I would be out working and, and come across a, a guy on his property. He's like, man, do you know anybody that traps coyotes? I'm overrun with them. They're just everywhere. And, uh, he would, Steve would come out and set traps and he'd catch two or three. 
you know, and this is a guy that could, could clean out a, clean out a, 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 a farm pretty quick. Right. And so it, it became real apparent that they didn't have as many coyotes as what they thought they did. You know, I don't know how many times I'd talk to people and be like, there must've been 20 of them back there behind the house, yipping and howling. It's like, you were probably hearing three. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So you get all the, you get all these guys that are, you know, thinking about predator management and then they get out there and, and they don't have as many critters as what they thought they did. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, maybe sometimes if it's raccoons, if they do put deer feeders up, you know, part of the year and they got raccoons, you know, and they get, they got their cameras on there <laughs> that might be seeing 20 raccoons. I mean, that one you might, you, you know, you might be able to uh, catch the numbers doing that, but yeah, first coyote, uh, coyotes on just one, say 300 acres. Yeah. You're just not going to catch that many unless you leave traps there the entire season. And it's got to be like a travel way. So once yeah. the pup dispersal, starts and they're traveling through then yeah you might be able to pick some up on again off again through the entire season but yeah generally there's not going to be you know 20 coyotes you're not going to catch 20 coyotes it's just not gonna, you know it just doesn't happen so you know i've always i've always considered trappers um i've always held them in really high regard uh the trappers i know and grew up with and and aspired to be and i'm not a good trapper i just i i've trapped uh but you guys are so tuned in to a lot of things, everything from just like you talked about pup dispersal, you know, you not only understand the fur bears, you understand the food source, you understand the habitat, you understand all these different things. And, and most serious trappers that I know are very well read in those parts of the natural world. And you take it really serious. So, yeah, I, th I think that I think that is people that have been at it and the ones that stick with it. They're always wanting to learn. Um, and I, I think that's gen I think that is very generally true. Uh, it's interesting that. I don't I don't. Um, that if there is a study that's done by some biologists or um, in the fur bear realm. Um, generally. Um, trappers in a higher percentage are willing to help with that than mm -hmm. most consumer outdoorsmen. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times it's because maybe a hunter may only go opening weekend of deer season and he may not, that might be his only hunting of the year. Whereas the trappers are pretty much committed. If they got traps set, that's, you, it's an everyday deal, you know, and it, yeah. it's, it, yeah. it's um, you know, but it's, it is interesting that they are uh, very, um pretty proactive in in helping with any type of um need that there might be for um um some sort of research that's being done so jim and nancy jim and nancy mahoney sure were, were both my school bus drivers when i was little oh that's small <laughs> yeah. world oh man and um so so Jim and Nancy have been active in the Indiana Hunter Education uh, Association they've been in involved i mean they have been there and donated so much of their time wasn't jim president of the north american fur takers for a while and or um, something yeah for um association called fur takers of america and he, there it he is. and nancy both have been involved in that for for years and he, he was on the board and, and um, um he helps we have a local chapter our chapter 7b in fact we have the 
Chapter 7B Fall Rendezvous is that outer place. It's always the last Saturday of September. And Jim still comes up, cooks a big pot of stew. <laughs> and, you know, Nancy's still very involved. And so, yeah, even in their 80s, they, they're they they're still going and still, yeah. um, you know. But. We would work that Atterbury deer hunt on Thanksgiving mm -hmm. weekend. And, um, of course, we were all out there working. And a lot of times we weren't at home you know, with our families on Thanksgiving, Jim and Nancy always hosted Thanksgiving dinner at their house for all the officers that were working that deer hunt. Yeah. And, um, uh, they've been rehabilitators. Uh, they're a really good example of trappers and, and both, uh, both of them are very well educated on the things of the, the natural resources. And I mean, wildlife, They've been re licensed rehabilitators, hunter head instructors. So they're a good example of what you just said. Right, right. Then they're, yep. they're trapper head instructors as well. So yeah, it's uh Yep, for they, sure. They've, they've definitely left a um, lifelong legacy on this uh, uh, um, volunteer time on this whole thing. So Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Well, um, you brought it up, so I want to I want to talk about this a little bit. There's there's been some controversy lately about um, some organizations that have have hosted some um, what are being coined as killing contests for raccoons, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted this is one of the things that that drew me over to you guys it's it's all this information is valuable anyway stuff that that most of us are are going to be interested in because of the fur trade and different things we're hunting we're hunting the same things you guys are wanting to want to trap but um i want to spend a little bit of time about uh, and talk about what trapping in the modern era is and dispel some of the rumors and and talk about the methods of trapping, the most effective methods of trapping to try to reduce some of the ideas that there has to be this conflict between trappers and houndsmen. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I'll just ask, ask some questions and, and you guys can answer, but uh, let's just focus on, on raccoons because that that's the hot topic of the day. Um, as a, as a trapper, how much, how many, miles of road time would you say the average trapper puts in to be able to trap uh, run an effective trap line in the state of indiana i mean that's a that's pretty difficult to answer um and it all depends you know if there is a a driving force with a say we have a strong raccoon market which right now we there's not a, a, a raccoon yeah market. yeah so um, guys are kind of shift gears, um, and, and really not target them. Um, so it's, it's, did I, you say, can, did you say can, guys are shifting gears and really not targeting them? No, no. Why, uh, why just because there isn't a, a market for those animals? Right. Right. I mean, uh, generally speaking, guys don't like killing stuff if they don't have a specific need to, you know, so, right. um, it, 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 they all realize that the management of it is important and, um, um, but they, you know, they're not going to go out and try to target to catch a hundred raccoons or anything like right. that. But, That's a lot of work, time, effort, money to even be out there to do it. You know, you put a lot of work in 
the skin stretch, dry it out to even have a finished product that you can sell. And you know, you're getting three to five dollars or something right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a yeah, lot. Yeah. There's if no that, no return on investment there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, okay. the market's always up and down and it varies, but like what we were mentioning earlier, he said guys are switching gears. Well, trapper's just gonna go after maybe something else, uh, like beaver right now, or, mm -hmm. or kind of the hot item if you're a water trapper. So they might target that more so than they would the, the coons and let, let me on, you know accident or in a, a trap that was meant for something else they'll you know they'll take care of that and still sure sure it. Well, let, let me reframe the question a little bit so if there was a market for raccoons right now and we were at the beginning of it and and um what would your expectation if i wanted to trap 100 raccoons in a week in the state of indiana how would you go about doing that and what would that look like if, well, if you just have to go out and line up some permissions so in indiana technically you can't road trap so um as far as just running bridges and there's guys that do it um but i mean generally that's not you know technically legal because yeah. we that landowner owns to the center of the the county right. has a right of way, but in the state of Indiana, the landowner actually owns to the center of the property line, and that may be the center of the road. Right. Right. Yeah. You, that's where your property tax is based on, though, I believe. So. Mm -hmm. But for for the guy that um, wants to go out and work at it, and you know he might run fifty or sixty miles a day, have several different farms that he hits. Uh, probably is going to use a side by side or a four wheeler or something to um, travel travel those farms. I will tell you, going back to when I collected fur for NAFA, um, and we were that was during there was a couple there was two or three periods of time during those NAFA years that actually there was three where the market hit pretty good, mm -hmm. um, and most all all three times it was short lived. But there was the last one was 2013. Coons hit a you know, really good money, $25, $30 averages, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was so short lived that it never, you know, we had like a short spurt and it just didn't stick around very long. But even in those times like that, the average guy would still only bring in maybe 30 or 40 raccoons. And then just a handful of guys would have a hundred or more. Mm -hmm. just didn't just didn't have the guys that were able to justify Maybe they had a week off work or two weeks off work, and that's when they went out and and worked at it. And a lot of guys just multi species tra species trap, so they'll they'll do you know they'll go. most guys like to trap coyotes. That's kind of the most challenging thing. Mm -hmm. And um, if they're going to recreationally trap, that's it. And but if there's a driving force behind the other stuff, they you know they will concentrate a little bit more on that. But even even in those big years of fur money, um, in recent years, it, it was. Uh, generally there weren't that many people that caught a hundred raccoons or more. I mean, mm -hmm. they, just, they just really weren't out there. If we go roll it back to the seventies and eighties, when guys literally went the entire three months and beat the bushes, um, you know, and dog hunters did the same, um, you know, it was, that was, that's a different story, but Indiana pretty much consistently at that time produced about 250,000 raccoons year in, year out. So um, the population was able to withstand that pressure. Yeah, uh, but I think we have more raccoons now, probably because we don't have that consistent pressure year in year out. But yeah, I do too. Uh, I had a conversation with 
Bruce Plowman, remember him when he was the sure. fur bear, fur bar, uh, biologist, you know, he was, we talked numbers on exports and how many raccoons we were, we were bought. You guys, you guys were buying a uh, year. He had access to all that data and it was astounding. And, and we were talking in some of those lean years and comparing to what we used to do. And, you know, it was a big conversation, but the numbers were way off. And, and he says, man, we need people to, to take more raccoons. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, so I guess what I'm trying to get down to is say, you've got a three day contest, say in Indiana is we've got a very good coon population. We've got Turkey populations too. So that seems to be the new controversial thing is the, the raccoon contest that, that, um, uh, three, a two man team may bring in. 75 raccoons at the end of that 48 hour period what would they have to do to to be able to do that i'm i'm thinking it'd be lots of miles it would have to be places i could be in and out quick and and it's not going to be a lot of the same places that i'm going to be able to hound hunt you know or turn a hound loose i I think that is generally true so when you stop, if if they've got permission and you stop at a bridge that's the crossing point for a number of animals well, they just assume that they have permission. Right. Yeah. So they stop They stop there. Um, they'll set maybe four sets, two on each side of the of the uh, creek or waterway, and, and then on both sides of the bridge. So mm-hmm. that, that's generally it. And that will cover you for miles actually going up and down that creek because that all that stuff is going to pass through that, that bridge point. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they're not gonna. They're not gonna take the time to put on a pack basket and start heading up the creek, walking. Right. They're gonna Too get time. Yeah. Right. They're gonna get in, set some traps, move to the next location, and set up and get on a whole another whole bunch of raccoons. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be spread out. It's gonna be the ones that are. If if you only got a couple day process, you know, if they're doing the contest, if it's two or three days, you know, you're not gonna have raccoons that are two miles down the creek most likely within that couple three days, maybe, but. Yeah. So anyways, you're yeah. you're you're caught, you're catching the cream of the cream in easy access locations, uh, probably close to a travel way, and that that's what they're doing. Yeah. Obviously, it's going to depend on raccoon level of population to be how many locations you're going to hit. But uh, mm-hmm. if, for instance, if they caught seventy five, you know, so yeah, you may not have to hit that many. I don't know. But. XP Podcast Network is sponsored by Onyx. The most comprehensive mapping system in the world is available by going to onyxmaps.com and downloading their app. Several subscription offers there. Highly recommend you using Onyx. And here's a true story for you. We've all got that spot where when we turn our hound loose at night, they're going to head that direction. Well, the other night, my hounds headed in a direction for that property that had recently sold. I had no idea who owned that property. I simply opened up my Onyx app, found the landowner information, cut the dogs off, and the next day, I went to their house. And not only did I get permission to hunt there, I think I made some new friends. They are beef farmers, and they do not like raccoons running through the feed bunks leaving their mess behind yeah go to onxmaps.com and download the app today at checkout make sure you use the promo code hxp20 and get 20 percent off 
When you join us on Patreon, you will get a discount code for a deeper discount on Onyx Maps. Know where you stand with Onyx. When I look at the red, white, and blue, the flag of the United States of America, I get kind of emotional. I think about the freedom that has been won across the world under those colors, the daily freedoms that that provides for me. I think about the men and the women who have put it all on the line to ensure that I have the freedoms that I have. And that's why I'm proud that Houndsman XP supports an organization like Freedom Hunters. We've gotten the opportunity to host multiple hound events and represent Freedom Hunters on those hound hunting adventures and get that full experience of paying something back to veterans. These veterans come back from combat theater and active duty and they need an outlet You know, your world is different when you're on active duty. You do stay in touch with your buddies and stuff like that back home, but but it's a lot different. And so many times these veterans lose track of opportunities to get plugged into a lifestyle of hunting and fishing in the outdoors, and Freedom Hunters provides them with that opportunity to get plugged back in. It's a great opportunity for us as houndsmen to get involved in that and host a Freedom Hunters adventure. It's that simple. You can get more information by going to freedomhunters.org or you can send me an email at chris.houndsmanxp at gmail.com. We will get some very simple paperwork completed and we can start honoring the real heroes of America. Check out Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org. Well, in my mind, what I'm sitting here thinking about is I've, I've got this particular bridge in mind, um, and it's an area that that ha- really has no access to that creek uh, by vehicle for several miles each direction. So if I'm setting four traps there, and I'm trapping numerous ditches like this, I'm setting four traps at that point, I'd have to be checking, like setting at dark, checking at midnight, resetting. And then even if I was 100% on all four traps, that's only eight raccoons off of that one ditch. Right. For how many miles each way? Right. You know, and and as soon as they're gone, the next night, there's going to be another raccoon that's going to, you're going to find tracks there on Monday morning, fresh tracks. Right. So that's kind of what I was wanting to set up here was a realistic scenario you know, I, I just, in all my experience with trappers and hound hunting and everything, I've just found that, that there is a way to, to, for us to get along here. And right. you guys are, you guys are trapping close to municipalities, urban areas, uh, busy roadways, all those sorts of things that I would never have the opportunity, nor would I choose to turn a hound loose in that location. Right. right. So... Right. That is true. And in the scheme of things, I mean, there's a lot of geography in Indiana that you guys can hunt and that we can trap. And um, realistically, there's not that many houndsmen and trappers in the scheme, like it's in present day. Right. There's enough out there for all of us, for sure. You know, so. 
what was it like back in the, I don't want to get too far off the current topic. Maybe it's time to, but uh, let's talk about what it was like back in the day in the early, early eighties, late seventies, Charlie. So it was, it was, it was, um, there was, it, I, I wrote, I wrote some big checks back then. I have to tell you that, you know, guys did pretty, pretty well. It was but a I, wild west. It was the wild west. And to yep. me, the, the negative downside to it outweighed the positive side to it. It, it, you know, it, it brought the worst out in a lot of people. And, and, um, um, I, I like more, of, I like more of a toned down for market. I like, a, <laughs> I like a $10 average on Coon. You know, I don't like the $25 average. It, it just, you know, you, you get the opportunist. And yeah. I used to, I used to use this scenario and I would tell people this and fish and wildlife meetings and different things. Cause what I got hired in 1990. So I was at the tail end of that big fur, fur market era. So the guys that worked, I mean, if they got hired in 1975, they had 15 years on, they lived all that time, all the way through that high fur market. And, and I experienced it, you know, you had every person in the world, they either had a, a coon dog tied in the backyard, um, all the outlaws were out. So you had trespassing, you had people cutting fence, you had people smoking den trees and trying to get coons out from underneath barns and burning barns down. And I mean, it was just a, it, it was, was crazy. Cra- it was crazy. Some of the stories you heard, well, the res- the residuals of that, you know, if I experienced that as an officer, when I first got hired, here comes Chris Powell in 1990 and he's a coon hunter. I'm surprised they hired me. I really am. I mean, um, that word was a dirty word. But what I've found is, is all those outlaws that were involved in all that, as soon as the money was gone, now that now they went to stealing copper, uh, snagging, (laughs) (laughs) cooking meth, uh, snagging paddlefish out of the Ohio River, stealing timber, you know, they're going to find a way to get their money on the criminal side, they just happened to see the opportunity in the price of a raccoon. And they ended up giving us all a bad name that lasted. It's, it's some of it still hangs on to today. Yeah. yeah. There a the couple, couple things. Well, mentioned, uh, there was a guy that came in and he was lived locally and I, I knew him personally and he'd come in and he'd sell coons and, and, Every he was always complaining, just one of those, you know. I'm, and he was said, "I can hardly wait till coons drop to five dollars, because then I'll have the woods to myself and all that." And when it when they did, he was the first one to quit. <laughs> oh no, kidding! <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I wasn't surprised. It was just because he, you know. Yeah, can you? The other, can the you... other one, the other one we hear fairly often is, "I love to trap, but, but." Not, you know, I just, I just, there's, there's no money in it anymore. So, well, first of all, you don't love to trap because that, if that's the only, <laughs> that's the only requirement, then you're not a trapper, you know, but right. you know, we hear that all the, all the time, particularly if we do um, like the deer and turkey expo at the fairgrounds or someplace where you're going to see j- more general population of uh, outdoors people that mm-hmm. we'll hear it more there, but. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's like trapping had to have a a monetary value for people to be interested in it. And yet these same people will sit in a tree stand and spend thousands of dollars on a piece of property to shoot a deer that they 
has no market. It's not supposed to have any market value to it anyway. <laughs> We've created well, market they'll... values for those deer too, whether they, right. people like it or not. And then we'll go spend two hundred dollars to have a process and you know whatever. So it's like yeah, it's just all of what you you know. It's just the whole thing is what you guys enjoy um, running hounds and we like setting some traps and and um, you know we have enough outside pressure that doesn't really care for what either one of us do that we really can't afford to be going at each other on on the when we're all on the same side. Yeah, I agree with that, man. It's um, if you look at the low hanging fruit in the outdoor industry, houndsmen and trappers are are on the bottom rung of that oh, yeah. ladder. I mean, we we're the stepping, and that's what we try to talk about all the time. It's like, man, we got to protect every bit of it because, Mister Deer Hunter, when we're gone, they're not going to stop. They're coming after you. You know, your trail camera that dings into your cell phone, your elevated platforms, your, you know, whatever it is, you know, they're going to keep coming after your methodology until they get it all. Right. For sure. For sure. So, um, what do you guys, why don't we talk about who's your trapper supply? You know, you guys have got a website. What sort of, what sort of products you carry? Are you guys making your own lures? We, we do. I, I developed a line of lure. Um, sold, it's sold on the Leatherwood Leatherwood uh, Trapping Scent line. Um, so I developed those formulas. Justin has one that um, called Jet Fuel that uh, uh, had a little help with. But um, yeah. Uh, and then we we have a, a bait that we're um, we sell a lot of bait. It's called Top Dog Predator Bait. It's it's a we sell the stuff all across all across the country. It worked in every state. Um, we sell a full line of trapping equipment. Now we also sell a line of deer hunting scent. Um, uh, uh, one that we that I formulated. It's called Lip Liquor Deer Lure. And, and deer hunters have got they don't quite have an understanding of scent that trappers do. Um, but there, you know, there's no there's no magic formula out there, or no you know no 100% magic formula, but I will, I'll, this is close as I've come to, to something that, I, you know, works pretty well. So, yeah. Um, well, but, if you could we just sell go, all, the, all the equipment. Yeah. If you guys could just go ahead and uh, send me the recipes for lip liquor and that top dog, I'll make sure we get everybody uh, making their <laughs> own. <laughs> I bet you're protective of that. Um, and so you guys, I just recently bought a pole snare from you and um, I, I was, I was done with uh, using my old conduit and uh, and Romex wire that I'd, I'd peeled out. I carried that thing in my truck for years. I don't know why I never bought a pole snare, but I just recently bought bought a pole snare from you guys. Great. It was great. Got, got it like the next day, too. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. we. Uh, my daughter, Justin's wife, she kind of uh, heads up the shipping and... and um, um, she she makes sure that stuff gets shipped the same day that the order comes through. So I'm serious. I couldn't I could not believe it. I placed that order. I think she even called me to verify the order or something. I can't remember what what that was, but the next day it was here. And you know, the only way I could have got it in quicker is if I drove drove up there and got it myself. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that was a that was amazing. But uh, are you guys leaning into the deer hunting market and and is that a lot of what are your tax a lot of what your taxidermy business is, or are you doing a lot of fur bears too? Um we we do a lot of 
we do a lot of um, white-tailed deer. We do a lot of big game. Mm-hmm. We do. We tan a lot of hides. We tan a lot of stuff. You guys um, are tanning in-house? We do our taxidermy tanning in-house, and if somebody just wants a skin tan, we do all the prep, and we do send that out. Okay. Um, we'll do a crate or two of African stuff a year. Um, the, um, we do a fair consider, I guess, probably because of what, you know, we're associated with, we do do a fair amount of small mammals, you know, for mm-hmm. their am- mammals. Um, so. Birds, fish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, Justin, I think he's been scraping bears. It seems like for two months, just trying, you know, trying to get stuff cleaned up out of the, you know, get, work through the freezers, you know, because sure. all the work comes in at most, of, you know, in a few months. So, yeah. But, yeah. So who's, who's doing the most of the taxidermy work, both of you, or you guys got a taxidermist or Justin, you leading the way on that or what's up? Actually, the, the head of the department, I would say would be Elaine. We've, <laughs> we've got a, uh, she's kind of a lifelong friend. She lives up the road, farm, farm girl. She actually kind of, um, heads up the taxidermy. I did it for years, but my um, workload with everything else, uh, the trapping supplies and whatever, doesn't give me as much time as I once had. But I still do a, a fair amount of um, the birds and that kind of thing. And the Justin just does. I jump around. I'll either be doing taxidermy work, uh, making lure and bait, pouring stuff, um, customer service, whatever. Yeah. I don't really deal with the shipping department because, you know, you close to your <laughs> I understand that, man. You keep your hands off of that. Keep my wife in. comes, my wife comes in and helps my daughter during the, during the peak time. But so. yeah, we just went through, uh, <laughs> shouldn't reveal this properly, probably, but, um, we tried to not outsource the shipment of our merchandise and, um, my wife was going to do it. So we keep that in house. Mm-hmm. That project lasted about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, this isn't worth it. I, I know somebody that can do this a lot cheaper on all fronts than for us to be trying to do this at home. It's worth yeah. the money for me to pay somebody else to do that for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> and you, yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be set up for it and you can't try to have minimal interruptions and you know so yeah 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 for sure well what do you think about bobcats in indiana why don't we have a bobcat season in in indiana charlie why don't we why don't we so uh you probably know this but in 2019 it was proposed Mm -hmm. and uh went through the natural resource commission i was at that meeting they said they went ahead and moved forward we're gonna we're gonna try to get this uh, through I was at that meeting too. Were you? Okay. Yep. And um, they had. Um, I was incognito, so. <laughs> they had. Um, um, what a meeting at, down at Spring Mill State Park and then one at Mound State Park for public comment, which mm-hmm. one at Spring Mill, I was at that one. That one wasn't too bad. There was some, some pushback, but overall it wasn't bad. Justin was there as well. And then we both, mm-hmm. then we went up to Mound State Park and that was a, that was a, disaster there was like 10 of us there in favor 70 or 80 of us against 70 or 80 people against us it was it was terrible so i mean there was everything from white rhinos going extinct to it was, everything that had anything to do with bobcat season was you know outside of not to do with bobcat season was discussed it was ridiculous right but, and i think you know and then the online comments were 
way lopsided and and um uh what i understand um i can't remember the guy that was the head of the, the chair of the natural resource commission but i i talked to him at the sportsman's roundtable um meeting it was brian pointer wasn't it yeah i think so yeah yeah brian pointer um, was and i mean nothing this this isn't anything against brian he's just there to conduct a meeting but go ahead yeah so and he was saying you know if we had had 30% content in favor, we we didn't have a season. But it was yep. like 10% and 90% against, rough, you know. And he said, that's, we just couldn't. And the governor was like, pull the plug on it. That's what I was getting ready to say. The reason we don't yeah. have a Bobcat season in Indiana is because sportsmen failed to show up. Right. And, and I think we thought it was a slam dunk. We thought, well, yeah, it's going to go through. So, um, and Gene, Gene Hopkins and I have talked about it numerous times. He'll tell you the same thing. You know, it was kind of a, a deal where we all thought it was a slam dunk. So we didn't have the media push. We didn't have the awareness put out there that, Hey, you need to show up to this meeting. And it just got flipped around on its head and said, Nope, not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, because and, and yeah, it was just, um, the otter season that we had prior to that um in uh went through pretty much without a hitch we were you know right. I, I only went to one of those meetings but it when there was some pushback and a, you know there was a couple people there where they were got a little unhinged but i mean overall it was a it was a, a good public comment meeting it was everybody was overall decent and, and we got the season it was it was not a big deal and then the bobcat yeah. thing came along and everybody came out of the woodwork you know so. yeah yeah, they and sure did. There is something about cats and wolves and bears that people oh, man. go crazy about. Yeah, there's money attached to it. and There's money to be made for places like Center for Biological Diversity, Humane Society, you know, send me your dollars. We're protecting these critters and blah, blah, blah. And right. uh, yeah, and we spend a lot of time on those topics. Um, but um yeah, I th do you think we're going to get one? Do you think you think we're going to revisit that? I'd kind of heard that Holcomb doesn't want to deal with it. So there's a lot of stuff he doesn't want to deal with. Yeah, but we in, need to we need to talk to his wife. Well, yeah, she's the outdoorsman. <laughs> Absolutely, outdoors woman. So, That's right. Um, I don't know if he's got other political aspirations after he's because he's on his last term. So you know, I don't, I don't know. But anyways, he. I, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but um, I, I can speak out of my out of turn. I'm not a business owner. I'm just a show show creator here. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, he's a lame duck governor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, yeah, he he's very comfortable where he's at. And I hope he doesn't have any higher political aspirations. So there I said it. Um, but yeah, moving on. I would say yes. We will have a bobcat season. Ultimately, eventually, ultimately, we will have one. So, well, to um, give to give our you know our biologist Jerry Ann Albers, the fur bear biologist. Mm -hmm. Have you met her? I've talked to her. I have not met her. Okay, she was she, she was she's hired a good advocate right. for us. Yeah, yeah. I think um, um, I would like to have some in depth conversations with her about it because uh, I don't like her. I don't like the model that she's been considering, but that's another, that's another topic for another podcast, maybe a private mm -hmm. conversation between us, but, yeah. um, yeah, 
yeah, I have talked to her about it and, uh, I hope to see it. I've, to give our audience an idea, in 2019, these two places, the public meetings were held. If you couldn't have picked two more polar opposite places to hold a public hearing. You got Spring Mill State Park. Southern, that, the heart of Southern Indiana. Heart of Southern Indiana, where the largest portion of the Bobcat population is. A lot of landowner conflict uh, down there with Bobcats. And then, so you've got that part, and then you go up to Mound State Park, which is within driving distance of Hamilton County, Indiana, where those people wouldn't know a bobcat if it walked across their yard. So extremely emotionally charged meeting up there, people not talking on based on science, just like you said, Charlie, talking about everything from, from uh, uh, falcons to white rhinoceroses to Leo the lion and, yeah, crazy stuff. Crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, very urban. And I yep. and I think, you know, and and most of them never fully realized that there was only 33 counties proposed, a quota of 300. It was gonna be very it was it was overly restricted, uh, I yeah. thought. Um, yeah. um, but I thought, well, shoot, it's a good, it's a great starting point. Let's let's just work through the process. And of course, it didn't even, you know, we couldn't even get up to that. So right, right. Well, guys, I'll tell you what. Um you guys got anything else? What what podcast you guys running? Plug your channel a little bit, Justin, and your podcast. Yeah. I like uh, giving our listeners other op options. Right. So as far as social media goes, we're on Instagram and Facebook. That's Hoosier Trapper Supply. Um, we put up a lot of content, um, over hundreds of videos at this point on YouTube. Um, either how-to videos or our trapping adventures or the podcasts which is all about trapping related on mm -hmm. all different types of, you know, uh, traffic subjects. And that's called the trap house podcast. Yeah. And you can either watch that, um, on the YouTube channel itself, or you can listen in on any streaming platform, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever, you know, something you can drive to work and listen or whatever. So how long, we got how long guest on all the time. We, we talk to a lot of different people across the country. So it, it's a good one. We talk yeah, anywhere from, so uh, we had veterinarians that were doing a study with Kansas State uh, on coyotes last year, and then we'll just talk to regular trappers too. So we we or we have a diverse, yeah. you know. Sounds like this show. Yeah, yep, that's <laughs> what we try to do too. So, yeah, yeah check out the uh, the Trap House podcast and the Hoosier Trapper Supply YouTube channel, and I think it'd be really good. I mean, if you've got heartburn over trappers, or at least at least gather some information. I think that's why I contacted you guys. I knew that you guys were gonna gonna uh, be able to educate our our listeners and give us some some insight on what's going on there in the trapping world. And um, being a multifaceted business like you are, you guys understand the dynamics of us all coming together and staying united and not trying to find. We need to find things we can get along with each right. other rather than find things that are going to divide us. Right. Right. So I will, I will, I will, Chris, before we get off here, I will mention that, that traps and, and trapping equipment has come a long way over the years. Yeah. Almost everyone uses uh, offset jaw traps. <clears throat> They're land trapping. Uh, trapping itself is, is, um, is regulated. Uh, it's not, it's not just some random thing that people just, just do. And um, uh, so the traps have, have come a long way. 
Um, we don't use traps with teeth and all this crazy stuff that you hear. Right. We don't want traps that create um, foot damage for the animal, which increases the chances of the animal getting loose. So I just want to, you know, trappers have done a good job um, moving, progressing forward in the equipment that we use. Well, I think I think a lot of that comes from, you know, we had to modify jaw designs, but we increased our technology on spring design. You know, at one time, like a, a, a single spring trap was, or a, a long spring trap was the order of the day. And now you're looking at kits where you can put four springs on a coyote trap. And, and so, but the jaw design is still designed so that it's, it's, your dog's not going to lose its foot if it gets, if it gets trapped in one of these traps. Right. Right. Yeah. But between the offset jaw and the wide face, like being a laminated jaw or a cast jaw, yeah. which is kind of the kind of the thing. So yep. Uh, I've helped weld weld plates on coyote traps and stuff to increase that that uh jaw face and stuff to right, you know right. spread that pressure out. And I've turned everything loose from bobcats to house cats to to dogs in traps. The house cats were kind of rough for me to turn loose, but it was right behind a house, so I had to do it. <laughs> yeah yeah all right guys well hey have you got anything else you want to get out there before we wrap it up that's it yeah appreciate you having us on chris man it's nice a pleasure yeah, yeah i'm gonna appreciate I'll, it. I'll wrap it up with this real quick story this is a game warden story so i'm gonna leave the names of the other participants out of this just to protect uh them i won't say ignorant because they're kind of my heroes but uh we were working one day and our district actually did not extend over to where your shop is. It was, uh, east of there. And one of the guys I was riding with that day or working with that day, he's like, man, I need to run over to the Hoosier Trapper and pick up something. I don't remember what even what he was getting. And we were, we were over there and we're sitting in the parking lot and dispatch called. And it's like, I'll just use my unit number 920. What's your location? And it's like, I'm West of St. Paul. <laughs> well, that, ta that <laughs> takes in a lot of country there. You know, yeah. I am West of St. Paul. We were about 30 miles West of St. Paul. Yeah. About I was going to say half hour. <laughs> yeah. 20 miles out of our district, but yeah, I'm West of St. Paul. That was always, that was a classic that we talked about a lot between me and this officer. <laughs> and ironically, his son, his son is now a conservation officer and he picked up on that. I was a supervisor and I'd call him on the radio and ask him where he was. And he's like, I'm south of Connorsville. It's like, well, that's about 80 miles worth of territory that you could be in. <laughs> never want to be too... You never want to be too descriptive when dispatch is asking you questions like that. <laughs> well, guys, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Houndsman XP podcast. I hope you got something out of this episode. And uh, till next time, this is Fair Chase. <laughs>